Why is recorded in front of a live studio audience. This is Why, with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. Hello, kitties. We're going to have a good time together. So I want to ask you something because this, I texted you about this the other day and it's been stuck in my head ever since. And so because of the show, because of my obsessive personality, yes, I I have been reading a lot of books and a lot of notes on different musicians Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you have as well. Yes. Probably not as much as me, but that's neither here nor there. Well, that's fine. This isn't a competition. It is, but it's okay. Yeah. You are far Um, better read than I. But I read something or heard something about a band that in recording one of their, I believe, most recent albums could not afford a string section that they wanted to include in a song. So instead of hiring a string section with money they didn't have, they just got together and sang the word strings to the tune of the orchestration they would have put on with strings. Okay. And I don't know who that is. And it's driving me crazy. So I would like to offer that up to the grad school community. Yeah, I don't know. Do you know? Does this ring any bell? No, not. It does not ring a bell, nor does it play the violin for me. Right. And I can't even narrow it down because I've been reading stuff about the Grateful Dead and Rush. So it's like, it's a wide array of music. So I can't even be like, oh, well, if it's in this genre... So I have no clue. I've been reading about Lou Reed, so that's not. Oh, which one? Which uh, the one I Curtis? The one I started forever ago and had to put down because we had so many other things to read. Yes, it is that one. Mm -hmm. Is it good? It is good. Excellent. It is Um, indeed. So today, I don't know why we're wasting all this time with this nonsense because we've well now i'm annoyed like why didn't you look this up and just find the answer are we do we have are we doing like a contest like do we have something to give away i don't think we're doing a contest i i would because i was i'm not gonna listen to you until i know the answer to this question if i was gonna be more buzzworthy wordy and hip to all the lingo i would say hopefully the grad school hive mind will be able to come up and help us and you're making a face that is just like, good luck, Sonny. Well, this I don't is going to bug me for like years. It's, now and... it's going to bug me. That's the yeah. problem. Welcome okay. to my nightmare. I'm going to look this up. I'm gonna no, I was it. Googling. Like, and it didn't come up? Back up? I was trying every different version of. Was it us? Of, like, was it? Maybe it was us. <laughs> maybe we were no. like, I, too bad we don't have this swelling, amazing string section to intro us into this show. And then we yeah. said, why don't we just say the word strings repeatedly? And that will do. I know we've talked about having a string section. And so I think see? that's maybe part of the thing that's just making me crazy. Maybe it's us. I think it's us. Maybe it could be us. But or was why it, are we? Or was it one of our, the composers we spoke to? Did they tell us that when they were putting the pieces together to send it to someone? Uh, I don't know. Like, and this is where the strings would go. Right. If it was um, Demar and what's the name or, of his composer he worked with, or uh, Roger, Roger, Roger Demar, or Alan, or. Uh, was it Leslie, I believe, is the composer we talked to? 
Wesley. And we're completely tipping our hand on Kamari? people we spoke to. Uh, no, I thought Leslie it was Leslie. Leslie's not her name. Um, you got to cut all this out because we can't I let know. our guests know we screwed up their names. Lauren. Okay, Lauren. That's an L. That's an L word. Yeah. Does that count for anything? Um, sure. Katomi. Okay. Because I could see Katomi saying something like that. Or Lauren. Because she's both. Right. It could be. I don't know. I, I just... Um, I would love to put it out to the, um, to the to our listeners and see if anybody else has read the same thing that I read. Um, I doubt it, but just just in the off chance, you know. I know. All right, it's good. Um, so that is that is that. We also, but we need to stop yakking about this and talk about the show we have this week. Because mm. let's let's be honest, we got a show this week. We do have a show this week. We have the great Steve Cropper. Yes, and which just that sentence is insane to it's say. Pre- it's pretty cool, right? Yeah, I I think so. I think it's very cool. So, if you do not know, um, welcome out from under your rock. Mm-hmm. Time to get your thing out of a rock. Exactly. Let's go over a few of Steve's highlights. He okay. wrote and recorded and sang his solo album, Playing My Thang, in 1983. Mm-hmm. He did, with one of the best album covers of all time. Right. Close second behind his first solo album, whose name I cannot recall at the moment, where he's speaking is- through some Venetian blinds. One of, by far, one of the greatest album covers of all time. And yet those are not the things he's known for. I know, it's bizarre. He also, if that wasn't enough, he <laughs> was in Booker T and the MGs. He uh-huh. backed Otis Redding. He and has played with... With Otis Redding. Uh, he wrote with Otis Redding, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. He co-wrote Soul Man with Isaac Hayes. He performed, has played with all four Beatles. Not at the same mm-hmm. time. No, but still. He's worked with the Staples Singers. It's an insane list of people. Mark Farner. It, he's worked with everybody. Mark Farner, Felix Cavallari, a ton of folks. And now he has another sort of proper solo album. Yes. And it's it's a fun little listen. It's very gritty. It's very... I, I had it on this afternoon as I was doing stuff. And it's... I don't know. Every time he comes up, like there's that little break and all of a sudden, hey, here's Steve playing his thing. It's yeah. just like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. And so, he is, um, I guess we kind of forgot the important part that uh, he was named the number two greatest guitar player of all time by Mojo Magazine over in the UK. Yes. Yes. And he was um, in the top 50 guitar players of all time for Rolling Stone. Yes. And do you want to tell the best anecdote that goes with that story? I think you should go ahead. So when Mojo called Keith Richards, of all people, to say, hey, here is the second greatest guitarist of all time. What do you think of that? His response was simply perfect. (laughs) And I hope he just hung up the phone afterwards because that would be the most Keith Richards thing ever. So we can always hope. Because Keith Richards is also, in my mind, perfect. Right. No, I. that's going to be question one when he comes on the show. Yes. So it is. 
among a host right. of others. Right. Hey, Keith, not so- tell us about your blood replacement. Not, you no. know, tell us. We're not asking. Uh, no. But I have no. the perfect shirt to wear. I actually have multiple shirts to wear for that interview. Oh, we're going to have to schedule breaks so you can change. Mm-hmm. Be like seeing Cher. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we also want to just mention to the Y listeners, there is not a horrible mix-up in your player. This is a crossover episode, and I think we'll put something earlier so people really get it. But this is a second show that we host called Rock and Roll Grad School, and we hope you'll join us new episodes every single Wednesday. We have a murderer's row of guests already on the show. We have your legendary DJ, inventive DJ, Nikki Ciano. We have... Chris Hillman from both the birds and the flying burrito brothers who had some great Graham Parsons stories. Mm-hmm. We've got authors of a couple really great books, one on hair metal, one on hard rock from the seventies. Mm-hmm. We have We've Mark got some up and coming. Yes. From grand Frank and Mark Farner's American band. We've got some up and coming singer songwriters. Mm-hmm. So if you Google rock and roll grad school, I did this just now. It's amazing. The only thing that comes up is our show. I know. Isn't it wonderful? Whereas if you Google why uh, all of Google answers comes up. So enjoy that. Enjoy this show. Hopefully we will see you Wednesday. If Mm -hmm. not, thanks for trying. We'll see you again (laughs) next Monday with something completely insane. Yes. Thank you. Perfection. Perfect. Godspeed. It's been a while since you've released a proper solo album. Why did you feel that sort of now was the time to well, give this? I have to explain it now. <laughs> when I said it, I knew what I was thinking, but nobody else did. It's the first album I've had since that very first album with a little help, my friends, it actually has some, some groove to it, some dance music. Everything else was sort of like, you know, song after song. And some of them, I tried to keep them danceable, but this is more, this whole album is all about having fun and dancing. And I think everybody's ready to get back to that. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yes. They want a little excitement in their life, I think. And that's why I say this is the first real album. I should have used the word real. I said the first album, and everybody took that as saying, well, you've had other albums out. Yeah, my whole career is full of albums, but it's the first serious album of dance music. That's what I'm thinking. And it really sounds like it's of a piece. Like it's all, the uh, sounds it, are all very it's similar. It's fun. I listen to it. I never get tired of listening to it. And most of my projects, once they're finished and mixed, I listen to it one time to make sure it's okay. Or the test pressing, then I le- never listen to it again unless I hear it on the radio, a song <laughs> And this one I listen to, and it's it's just great. It makes you happy and makes yes. you feel good. It does. So Being able to good. sort of sneak and preview that's what it. We always did stacks. We we took a lot of songs and just turned them around, and then we made them our songs. But we made dance music. That's all we were doing. We take a lot of old blues things and put a beat to it and make them dance. I'm comedian David Race in Los Angeles. I host a celebrity-filled, paranormal talk show like no other. Monstrosity has great guests, 
answering weird questions. You won't believe the combo of celebrities and paranormal experts who've been on this show. I guarantee you'll like Monstrosity, or you get your time back. Go to monstrositypodcast.com right now and take a look. Your guitar sound is something that is so identifiable as you. I would hope so. (laughs) (laughs) How long into your playing? I know you started pretty young. Did you feel like you you got that thing that is like... (laughs) There's a lot of great players out there that I don't even compete. I wouldn't even think about competing with. But I can Mm -hmm. write songs when they can't. And and they can play solos when I can't. So there you go. I run out of notes after about... 12 bars or so <laughs> they don't they could play all night long and i never w- was able to do that i just don't have any interest for doing it i lose lose attention to myself after about eight bars or 10 bars or 12 or whatever i'm playing well and, every and- now and then i over there they want me to do two solos i'm going wait a minute <laughs> 24 <laughs> bars that's the best way out of my league guys <laughs> you know if they ain't mm-hmm. dancing, then it doesn't mean anything to me. So just playing to be playing doesn't mean a thing. Well, that I think comes through in all of your music, in all of your interviews. It it yeah. it, it always translates through. And I like and, to get in, get out of the way, and let people dance. <laughs> if they got to stop and listen, <laughs> I feel like that's words to live by. <laughs> Everyone needs to get in, get out, and just let people dance. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> And to Luke's um, point about your your sound is so distinct and so so you and obviously you've you've worked with a million different songwriters and all these iconic pieces and one of the things in in kind of looking through your catalog and then hearing your story your incredible stories of how so many of these great songs were created in your story about knock on wood and being so excited about it and then hearing feedback of you know that sounds a lot like in the midnight hour. But you, it, it, where does that line in your mind change from being, it's just the sound of us and our music and our songwriting and our playing and whoever the artist is, or to where it's like, oh, it's just a knockoff of another song we've done. How do you distinguish that? Well, I don't know. It's in terms of going from song to song, I think an intro tells you what song you're getting ready to play. It has, a lot of times it has nothing to do with the song musically but it gives you an identity of what's coming next. And I do that with, with soul band. I say, I'm going to play two notes. I bet everybody in this room knows the song that I'm going to play next. And then I'll play the whole intro and they get it. All I do is go boning and they know that's soul band. <laughs> it's true. And you have been a part of some, in, I mean, incredible songs, but songs that have amazing intros and identifiable intros where well, I, like I kind said, of just pride know. myself in that. And I was known at Stacks as the intro guy. And I had, and that's the, the one I just talked about, Soul Man. I remember Isaac Hayes coming to me the day before the session. And he said, Steve, I know you're not, you don't like to be bothered when you're mixing. However, I know that David Porter and I have written a hit for tomorrow's session, but I can't come up with an intro. Would you take five minutes and come down? And that's what I did. And I said, play something. He said, no, I want you to play something. I said, you play some changes and I'll play to it. We'll see. And he goes, that's it. And then we use it again as a modulation. So that worked out real good. I like the first impression guy. And do you have like a notebook of these things sitting around? Or was that just Isaac Hayes sort of playing and you're like, eh, this sounds good. But we're working on a book for the first time in my career. And maybe Mm. 
somebody can use that as notes and look at the book and go, well, there it is. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see what we talk about. So it is what it is. One of the things too you, that so often so many great performers and songwriters over time, they're tired of the stories. They're tired of telling the music. And yet it's so exciting to see, hear that you're putting together a book. And also you've done such a wonderful job, not just through interviews, but sharing those stories with the world and not letting them disappear into the annals of history. And I well, think I don't, I don't get tired of telling the same stories. And a lot of the questions are similar to the same. Basically they start about the same. Then what the information they want is the same. Sure. Uh, I don't mind telling that story. I mean, it's, I had such a great time at Stacks. And I have said this, if I knew what, what, what helped my career along, I would bottle it and give it to everybody. <laughs> It'd just be right there on the shelf. It goes, pick up your copy, you know, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I've been a very lucky guy. Just very lucky. That's all I can say. I love, too, that high school kids everywhere, if they just hear your story of how you felt, fell into stacks, yeah. They would have such an argument when they're accused of talking during passing time because great things happen when kids talk to each other in high school hallways. They and do. you're proof of point of that. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> when you're walking through the, the hallways of Stacks and you've got Isaac Hayes and you know the rest of the MGs there, did you guys realize how special and how unique a time that was? Well, you mentioned hallways of schools and I had a, a guy come up and he said, I understand you've got a real nice, good band. And I said, well, thank you very much. And he said, I want to be in your band. I said, well, we're not looking for anybody, but what do you play? And he says, I play saxophone. I said, well, we're not looking for horns right now, but how long have you been playing? He said, all oh, about three months. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I remember that like it happened yesterday. It's and such I a great story. I could have been more than 16 years old at the most. So I love it. And I love one of the world's greatest saxophone players. Yeah. He's not with us now, but, uh, he did uh, Charles Packy, Charles Axon, Charles Packy Axon, I should say. I love it. And he, in that conversation, he said his uncle owned a recording studio. That got my attention. Yeah. <laughs> but his uncle didn't. He he might have looked at it that way, but he had some recording equipment in his garage, <laughs> which he later got a studio. <laughs> but that's it. The rest is history. The rest is history. That's it. it. I just I love it. Some of your early bands were integrated at a time when that was a really big deal. And yeah. did you get a lot of pushback? We didn't know we were segregated. We had no idea. Mm -hmm. And when I hear about history today, they say Memphis, Tennessee was one of the most integrated or, or segregated cities in the South. And I, we never even thought about that. I mean, it was just, we weren't brought up that way. There was no color at stacks. There was no blacks and no whites. I mean, they were, but we didn't look at each other as being different. We were there for the same reason. That was to get a hit record. Mm -hmm. And the thing about stacks was that you just automatically knew if you had problems, if you had a fight with a friend or something, you left that on the sidewalk. You didn't bring it into the studio and talk about it because that would disrupt the day. You'd be talking about that instead of trying to make this song a hit. So everybody left their troubles out the door and went, pick them back up maybe when they went out who knows but it mm -hmm. was you felt so safe at stacks and it was just a great place to be and a lot of fun to, at the time and we had we had fun with music that's the main thing we made all that work it was work but it was fun we were very serious about what we did but we just had fun doing it a lot of fun 
lot of laughs and just giggle about it. Even uh, the session with uh, Green Onions, which turned out to be phenomenal because it still sounds good today. Yeah. And we, we did this blues thing. We're just laughing our kazoos off. And that's what Jim Stewart said. Hey, guys, you better come and listen to this. And we just, we were dumbfounded. We went, you recorded that? He was already set up to record, so he just pushed the record button. And that's how it all got started. And he said, uh, after we listened to it, we said, oh, that's pretty good. He said, if we decided, if we decided to put something like this out, do you have anything that we could put on the B-side? And we just looked dumbfounded. We didn't know. <laughs> and I did remember that Booker had played me a riff that he thought might be good for a vocal song. And mm -hmm. I said, I asked Booker and he said, I don't know, but come down to the organ, I'll play it and you tell me. And that was Green Onions. Three or four cuts later, we had Green Onions, the way it is. Maybe there's a greater power, you know, directing all this stuff. We don't right. know. We don't how know. We, how but... we, know? There's nothing, we have no way of proving it, but, uh, and we do get the credit and that's nice to have the credit for, but I think it's always somebody else's intention. Amazing. The story about Otis Redding getting signed to Stax and him coming in as a driver for the Pine Toppers and everybody saying, all right, let's give him a shot singing. Well, it was a Pine Toppers, Johnny Jenkins in the Pine Toppers session. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't know, I just, I remember we were standing out on the sidewalk and waiting for them to show up and they showed up about 20 minutes later than we expected. But uh, this big guy gets out of Cadillac and I didn't know that was Johnny Jenkins Cadillac. And I just thought that was Johnny Jenkins driver, but it wasn't, it was, he was the lead singer of the John Jenkins on the Pine Topper band. And, uh, he got, gets out of the car, comes back to the trunk, opens it up, starts carrying in mics and all kinds of stuff. And I said, Hey man, we got our own mics in there. You don't need to bring those in. He was setting up like he would for a gig. I said, bring Johnny's amp and all that stuff. That's fine. But I said, we don't need any microphones. We already have my, oh, okay. And he, he bugged our drummer, Al Jackson, all day long about listening to him sing. And he said, you know, Steve is in our guy. He holds auditions on Saturday. He probably won't be able to hear you sing. At the end of the day, because we didn't get anything that everybody was happy with, and so Jim Stewart said, uh, why don't everybody take off a little early and we'll let everybody go and start this thing again tomorrow. And so we were there doing that. <laughs> so I heard... Uh, Al Jackson came back and we were doing, listening to some playbacks. He said, could you just take five minutes out of your time and get this guy off my back? He's still bugging me to hear him saying, I said, bring him. Okay. I went down. I said, bring him down to, to the piano. And so this big old tall guy comes in and I said, okay, play something. He said, man, I don't, I don't play piano. I play a little guitar. He calls it. And, uh, he said, can you do, give me some of them? Do you play piano? I said, no, not enough just to write a little bit. And he said, you know, in them church quads, and what he was talking about was six, eight triplets. I said, you mean these? He said, yeah. And he started singing these arms of mine. And I just said, stop, you know? And I ran up to Jim Stewart and I knew I'd lose my job if Jim thought I was crazy. <laughs> I said, you gotta come out here and hear this guy sing. He's got the most, he's the only singer that I know of that ever made the hair of my arm stand up. And that, that happened that way. And, and so I grabbed Jim Stewart, Jim came down and he said, get the band back together. We gotta put this song down. <laughs> And that's how it all started. Otis had 17 in a row after that. And wow. poor Johnny played on These Arms of Mine. Johnny Jenkins is still sitting there with his guitar. <laughs> and he played on it. I played piano and, and the rest of his. And so Duck reminded me, he said, you came running out of the studio. He said, I was putting my bass in the car. And you said, Duck, get your bass back out. We got to put this song down real quick. And that was These Arms of Mine. <laughs> 
the next morning, the first thing we were doing was cutting a B-side for it. Hey, baby, wow. or whatever it's called, something that Otis had. And Otis Redding is one of those musicians who is now just cast in amber as this legend. And there's, you know, like a statue. But you right. knew him and hung out with him. Is there, what is there something, is there something about his personality and who he was that you feel like people don't get from well, the records? Well, maybe he was just a good old country boy. That's all it was. He brought up in the country and he talked country. And mm -hmm. the funny thing about Otis is you had to be around him some to understand what he was saying. But he knew. And uh, we actually put out a, uh, a record one time called the Dictionary of Soul. And on mm -hmm. the back of it is some of the cliches that he would say and what he meant by saying that. And I, I can't remember all of them. I know Uwe was one of them. <laughs> and that <laughs> was an important one. <laughs> the same thing as saying, oh, wow, that is really cool. He's Uwe, wow. <laughs> but there's more there. I don't know. There's 10 or 12 things in there. It's real funny. Yeah. And uh, you just get around him, and he was just a down-home guy, but I always looked at, at Otis as an older brother, even though we were the same age. I did not know that until I read everything about him when he was born. He was born in September, and I was born in October. So hmm. there's less than a month difference. We were both 26 when he died. And they said, wow. he did all that by the time he was 26. I said, yeah, it's amazing to me, too. Oh. Yeah. Well, and that <laughs> was so, I mean, that just... It's such a horrific story, obviously, his passing and all of that. And obviously, he, he left you and the rest of the, the team with these, uh, you know, obviously sitting on the dock of the bay and these amazing songs. Was there any sort of, what was the thought and process? Because often when an artist passes and there's something phenomenal in the works when they, when they pass, there's that argument of, do we, do we just leave it in the bin or do we give it to the world how did you decide to i have no idea i, I all i remember is that uh, jerry wexler called from new york and talked to jim stewart and jim came to me and he said steve what do you got ready on notice i said nothing you know we've been recording and nothing was finished he said well get something ready we got to put a record out and i said what <laughs> like, okay so, you know <laughs> in deep deep mourning about otis and he said i don't care he said you got to get something ready that's probably the hardest thing i ever had to do I would, I would have to be. I can't even imagine. But I did it in a 24-hour period. I started at 7.30 on a Tuesday morning and handed it to a flight attendant on Wednesday morning at 7.30. <clears throat> she was flying to New York. She handed the, the master tape <sighs> to an engineer, and he took it. Instead of going back to Atlantic, he took it straight to the, to the pressing plant and put it in a pressing plant. We had records out to the DJs by Christmas of that year. <laughs> did you actually know this flight attendant <laughs> what? or what did you actually know this flight attendant or no was it oh my god he was just on an airplane <laughs> going to LaGuardia and in and, and those days there was no security you could walk right out on the tarmac she walked mm -hmm. down the steps and I handed her the master she walked back up on the plane and wow steps up so it is what it is it's that's also divine intervention. You picked the right I, I, flight I remember attendant. the time it was 7 30 to 7 30, 24 hours later. Wow. wow. Oh my gosh. Oh, I would have been panic stricken handing that. It's like I would have carried it like my baby. <laughs> I got the we did it. And uh, it, it probably was bigger because of Otis's death, but they said the song would have never made it had he not gone. I, I disagree. We knew that song was a hit two weeks before it, we just knew it. 
Yeah. And you just have an inkling. You don't know when you're cutting it, but you know when you've done it and you listen to it back, you say, that's a hit. So Right. Yeah. No, that song and, is. And if it isn't, it isn't. But if it is, then you were right. And that's all you can say about it. So well, I think a, it was a hit anyway. It probably was bigger because he had passed away. To bring it back to the new album, I mean, you've written with a ton of people. Um, John Tiven is your co-producer and, and co-writer on this record. Right. But this is sort of the first bunch of songs you guys have done together. What is that collaboration well, like you know, compared John to other and folks? I started this writing session. Uh, and then the uh, Felix Cavalier was his idea to do this anyway, because Felix and I were playing in the same band, the RCO, I mean, the uh, uh, airline all star. So, <laughs> Northwest All Star. Yes. Anyway, uh, John got the idea that the two of us might be able to make a record together, which was a great idea. And we did. We did a couple. Mm -hmm. And uh, we made some real good records, I thought, some good songs, but they were different. And those were songs that were, would require a lot of airplay and a lot of work, of which I was out of business of promoting, so I didn't care. So anyway, it is what it is. And when these tracks came about, uh, Felix said, uh, he played on a couple of them, and then he said, guys, I don't want to finish this up for the album. Okay. He said, even if we finished the songs, I probably wouldn't want to sing them. So, okay. We started, from, did some other stuff which was good, but it was different. And so we mm -hmm. had all these, John had all these tracks. He has a studio in his house. So he had access to all these tracks. And I maybe live uh, five, 10 minutes away. I'm, I'm as close to his studio as I am to, to my studio. And we're in the RCA building downtown. And I'm, mm -hmm. I can see it out the window right here downtown. Mm -hmm. So a uh, very short distance. And uh, because of the lockdown, this album was put together during that lockdown during 2020, basically. Wow. And uh, he had access to it. Beth Hooker is singing background on, she's the only guest artist that we had. And uh, most of the drummers were put on back in 2018, 2019 and, and so forth. So uh, most of the songs were written to loops, just John and I. Mm -hmm. And then we would put on a drummer later and get rid of the loop. And uh, the uh, Bush Hog title, the first, title, first song in the album and the only instrumental in the album, uh, was done to a loop. It was called a loop. And I, I called John one day and I said, you know, I still think about that song we wrote, that instrumental. And uh, he couldn't find it. And he said, uh, you mean, uh, and he said the name of it, of the loop. And that's how he had it logged as the loop name. Mm -hmm. We couldn't use that on the album because it's been copyrighted, you know. But anyway, mm -hmm. so I changed it to Bush Hog. And for those who don't know what a Bush Hog is, it's a very large piece of farm equipment that is a large mowing machine. <laughs> so instead of mowing grass it's, it, it's big enough and strong enough to knock down bushes it's called a bush hog <laughs> hmm. that's what you do and people cut down the bushes and twigs and stuff to get ready to plow and uh, you know the roots get plowed under and they turn out to be mulch and work as fertilizer and it works real good have you ever written to a loop before or is this the first time with this uh, that's a good question I don't remember probably have and uh but i like playing with real drummers that can keep mm -hmm. time <laughs> the way we grew up we always listened to the drummer and we played to the drummer so the drummer kept time for everybody and we would make the cliche well that drummer thinks time is a spice <laughs> <laughs> you know that's what we grew up with and, and when they come out with electric drums i was still on la that was uh 
a good uh, what 30 30 years ago 35 years ago yeah. yeah something like that and when they had some of the greatest drummers in the world to work they had to learn how to program a drum machine oh man bless <laughs> your hearts they had no idea and i remember one time uh, there was a guy that had uh, he had produced nine platinum albums that means nine albums that had gone you know over a million sales to get platinum and he comes running upstairs and my friend that owned the studio called me and said, you're not gonna believe this. But so-and-so just came running up here and said, I'm, I'm doing this band, just making a demo on this band. They got a real drummer. What did I do? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, um... <laughs> what am I going to do now? So anyway, I'm glad those days are over. So we yeah. got real drummers on this record, on the fired up record. I mean, if you have your you have a, your choice of a host of incredible drummers, how did you pick which ones were the guests? Well, that's hard to say. The thing is that, that I grew up working with one of the greatest drummers and R&B drummers in the world. That's Al Jackson. There's no question mm -hmm. about it. And uh, Duck and I have been saying that for years. And then I think it was Anton Pig that turned us on to that uh, show that we did up in Oslo, Norway, that was re recorded in black and white. Mm -hmm. And I had said, when I watched, I said, either the guy, the head camera guy loved drums or he loved Al Jackson, one or the other, because he focused <laughs> on him a lot. And I said, there's proof right there on film that Al Jackson was the greatest R&B drummer in the world. <laughs> and I worked yeah. with the best of the best in LA. No question about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think on uh, a lot of people bring up the uh, John Lennon rock and roll session. Well, I think that day we had uh, Hal Blaine one of the world's greatest drummers in Hollywood yeah. playing on that session. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. No, to go I don't know. I mean, a drummer's <laughs> a good drummer. He's not a good drummer. I do know that the Blues Brothers band has uh, Lee Fickelstein. He's great. He's fabulous. When he first came out with the Blues Brothers, he had to learn the music. I mean, you, there's a pocket to everything, you know, yeah. and he finally mm -hmm. found it and he's the world's greatest drummer. But he took over, I think, uh, in Tower Power. He took over from David Garibaldi. He was that good. Wow. And David was one of the best drummers that I ever worked with in the studio, besides other guys that you know that are famous, like Jim Keltner and so forth. And um, we had Anton Figg, who was famous here because he was on TV five nights a week with the Letterman's <laughs> Cup. And he right. took Steve Jordan's place. And you know how, how good he is, but he turned out right. to be a great producer as well. So yeah. he really, Jordan really did understand music. And that's, everybody can't understand music. They don't understand what it's about or they just know they like it or don't like it. That's all I know. Well, a good producer can hear a song in its raw form with just maybe just a guitar or a piano and a vocal and hear it finished. Hear the whole embellishment of how many people it's gonna to take to finish the record and that sort of thing. So uh, there's an art, I think, and, and, a, and a knowledge of being a good producer and so forth. And it's the same thing as being a good session player. I have experienced this many times. You can't just take a great player that plays live for a living all of his life and put him in a studio and, and he turns out to be great because it's two different things. There's two different attitudes of looking at music when you're in a studio or when you're on stage playing in front of a live audience. It's just different. And if you can do both, great, more power to you. <laughs> I know we need to wrap up in a second, but um, uh, as as one of our la last questions, um, you you've played music your whole life. You've written music for decades. If anyone can answer this question, I feel like it is you. What is 
needed for a great soul song. <laughs> well, well, I would say a good performance by everybody, mm -hmm. but especially the singer. If the singer's not giving you a good performance, you're not going to have a hit record. You can't just put out a bad performance and, and you have to know the difference. So to start, like I said, when Otis, when the hair on my arm stood up, I knew we had a good singer. And so there mm -hmm. you go. So I, I refer to Otis Redding and Rod Stewart, the only two, two singers that I ever worked with that sang a song like it was the last song they were ever going to sing. Big difference. Mm -hmm. Because that inspires musicians to give their all. Everything they've got at that time, they're going to put all that energy towards that performance. So Excellent. I think the great uh, Cosmos down in, they made records down in uh, with Alan Tucson all down in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I like all this digital stuff, but at the end of the day, you don't have a great performance. <laughs> you might have a great record, but you don't have a great performance. And I think he's right about that. So who knows? Fire It Up, the new solo album by Steve Cropper, is available this Friday, April 23rd. For more information and to get your copy, check out his website, playitsteve.com. You can follow us on all the various socials. You can check out our website at rockandrollgradschool.com for more grad school content. And please leave us a review on iTunes. We're tired of asking our family members to do so. Today's show was produced by myself and Heidi Hedquist. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sove and Sandy Stone. Our willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. Our graphic designer is Samantha Mastonen. This one's for Philippe. Thank you, good night, and may all your favorite bands stay together. Attention.